Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the blessings you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and study your word together. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, Bob gives us this information and be beneficial to uh, our lives. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, today we are back here. We only covered one slide and we didn't even get through all of that. Let me read a couple of verses and then we'll go to the next slide. Last week's topic was God's purpose being fulfilled in the life of Christ and particularly in his execution. And we read a whole bunch of verses last week that said that, that it was necessary that the Son of Man come and suffer. Remember we quoted Matthew 18, woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. It's necessary or inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes and so on. So there's a couple of verses though that I wanted to deal with. Then we'll go to the next slide. Eric, could you read Luke 24, 26? And then, actually, after you read it, I'll ask you to comment on it. Luke 24, 26. This is setting the stage for some of what happens in Acts. It says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Wasn't it necessary? Day. So what are, what's the significance of that, Eric? Yeah, again, day, as you pointed out, Bob, it's the divine necessity. And uh, what's interesting is right after that, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is attesting to the fact that the entirety of the Old Testament is about him, being the law, the prophets, and the writings. They really were about him. It was necessary, for example, in Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would be a suffering servant to take away sin. Yeah. It's pointing this out. It's absolutely necessary that everything that God predicted comes to pass. And that's not just only about Messiah, but about other things as well. And as we were saying last week, this does not in any way alleviate human responsibility. Okay? It's necessary that Messiah be rejected, but woe to the ones who do it. They're still morally guilty. His betrayal was predicted, but Judas was still morally guilty. And some would question that whether that was quote-unquote fair, but just remember that there is such a thing as a sin nature. I got an email this week from somebody who claims there isn't one. Plagius is rearing his ugly head again. They're denying original sin, denying that we're dead in Adam. So I said, well, are you saying the babies are already, all babies are filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, they didn't answer. Are you saying that we can be free in Christ? Without the Holy Spirit, we don't need to be born again? Well, they didn't answer. So how are you alive without the Holy Spirit? I want you to answer that. They didn't answer that. Well, there's this age of accountability. I said, okay, what's that age? Well, I don't know. So then you're innocent and sinless and you have the Spirit, but the first time you lie to your little brother, then you become lost? Well, that'll get you to maybe age three. <laughs> I, I know, I, I had these emails coming to me. I just found out from Jessica, she sent them to me because she didn't want to deal with it. Well, she, she runs CIC for us, but let, let me give you a little hint that will help you have peace of God in your heart and not teach error. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. It tells us everything we need to know. And I've never felt the need after starting teaching verse by verse through the Bible in 1983, 
coming to Romans at 86 and realizing I had to change a lot of my own thinking, I don't need to say that. And somebody says, well, if you baptize your baby, then are they saved? But if you don't baptize your baby, does that mean they're lost? What if somebody dies at birth? And I said, well, the Bible doesn't tell us these things. I'll t- I, I trust God totally. I absolutely trust God. Whatever he does when we're in heaven, we're not going to be complaining that he did it wrong. But we don't need to speculate and make up all this stuff because the next thing you end up with is the emergent church. Because if we let human emotions tell us what we'll believe, we'll end up with this, emergent church. There's no hell. There's no judgment. Earth is going to turn into paradise. God is in everything. The gospel's false. Don't even teach that stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Because that's more appealing. They say you can't know the truth anyhow, so you might as well just believe what's appealing. It's sentimental. So we got romantic, idealistic sentimentalism determining what people are willing to believe. Here's what I suggest. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to believe what God said. And if what God said doesn't cover something we're curious about, we're going to just say, okay, I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I don't have to know everything. I have more fear of God about making up something God never said than I have fear of God about saying I don't know something because I don't think the Bible tells us very clearly. I've conjectured about it before. I've said, well, maybe there's good reason the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happens because there's probably people that would be willing to have their babies die to guarantee they go to heaven. People are that crazy. So why don't we just not know what we don't know and be happy that we don't know it and realize we're probably better off? Do you have any comments? You know, I'm thinking even in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul isn't allowed to speak of the glories of heaven. It's for our benefit that he doesn't. I'm just thinking of that, Bob, as you said. We don't know why babies or what happens to babies. The Bible doesn't reveal it. It's interesting, though, with the Pelagians and those who start denying Original sin, sin, nature, and original sin. That is clearly revealed. That's clearly. Well, that's clearly what I point out. I said some. Yeah. I said this person some scriptures. In Adam all died. What does that mean? Right. When do you become in Adam? At age twelve. How is it that you become in Adam? Why don't you answer that? You know, it's interesting. As David even said in Psalm fifty-one five, "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother." Oh, the Pelagians say no, it's because his mother was more sinful than other mothers. (laughs) Literally, that's what they say. Okay, uh, Lottie. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, I think they get that idea about infants being without sin from um, what was it David's son what is it Absalom or what died and in the Bible it says that he would be in heaven but he was probably of the elect could that possibly be uh, do you remember that I can comment if you, let me, if you know Hebrew better than I do you know, Go ahead and talk is, about that I just one. remember David, what his response is, is remember he's mourning because his son is dying. Yeah. After his son dies, he yep. stops mourning. And the servant asks him, are you not mourning now after your son is dead? He says, well, I'm going to go to be with him. Yeah. But what's interesting is the ambiguity of where David is going. Certainly David believes in the afterlife. I mean, he's, he's the one who penned Psalm 1610, that the Holy One would not see decay. Yeah. But it's ambiguous as to... What David is referring to is he Isn't that Sheol we're talking about? Yeah, is he referring to Sheol as the grave or is he referring to the afterlife? And so to build a whole doctrine on that passage, that's what's difficult. And is it because the infant that died had no sin? Or is it because, you know, the, the Bible doesn't reveal on what basis that infant was justified before God? Because he belonged to David? Because, because of what? So. What Bob is saying rightly is that we can't build a whole doctrine on something that isn't clearly revealed. What is clearly revealed, however, is that every single human being is born in Adam, dead sinners. 
Yeah. That's the whole point of all That's the one thing I want to hear. How is it that we're in hell? Yeah, amen. Now, these guys that were supposedly scholars, I was embarrassed it was so bad. That one video somebody sent me. It's embarrassingly bad. They don't know any better than that, and that's our scholars? Nonsense. So but they're, they're claiming that uh, uh, the orig original sin is a false doctrine made up by Augustine, and they never even mention what Paul said. So why don't you deal with Paul before you deal with Augustine? Go ahead. So, so then... Um even if you speculate, well, it's just a speculation then that Absalom was of the elect. We don't know, though. We don't know. Right. right. He died, went to Sheol. And look at the Old Testament. It says they were buried with their fathers. They were buried and they went with their fathers. That's just what they're going to say. And it's what we know. But does that reveal anything about heaven and hell? that Eric's been talking about in the book of Revelation. I don't know that it does. Do you think it does, Eric? No, you know, the only thing what I would say regarding the afterlife is Jesus makes the implication. Do you remember when the Sadducees are arguing with them? And they say that they give them this conundrum where a man has a wife and he dies, but she remarries. They're, they're picking up on this Leverite marriage law. Well, what they're trying to do is to show an absurd scenario to, to try to prove the absurdity of the afterlife. The husbands keep dying. The wife gets, keeps getting remarried to the next brother. Therefore, whose wife will she be in the afterlife? And that's supposedly a conundrum to Jesus. But Jesus, what's interesting is the Sadducees won't receive the prophets. They only receive the first five books exactly. of Moses. So Jesus goes back to a book that they would accept, Exodus 3. And he builds the doctrine of the afterlife on the character of God. When God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals himself as I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. The and the implication that Jesus himself gives is God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what kind of glory would it be to God if he was the God of three dead guys? That's the implication that Christ gives. No, God is the God of the living, not the dead. So the point being is there's certainly implications of the afterlife in texts that we don't even readily recognize. Moses and Elijah on transfiguration. Exactly. But Jesus, as the authoritative prophet of God, tells us that's a fair implication of that text. When it gets to the issue with David and his son, again, that's somewhat ambiguous. So uh, that's how I would Okay. Well, the point is, uh, as, a, as somebody who's been preaching for 45 years... I'll tell you something I think that will help you. Don't make grand pronouncements about what's not revealed. There is an afterlife. What do we know? We need to repent and believe the gospel. What do we know about baptism? It's for believers. What do we know about being in Adam? I believe that it's part of the fall, all persons are in Adam by natural generation. How do we become in Christ? By supernatural regeneration. And so, if we start fooling around with this stuff, like the Roman Catholic Church did, trying to come up with answers the Bible doesn't give, the next thing you know is infant baptism, then you have First Communion, and then you have Confession, and then you're still not so sure, so then you have Purgatory, and then you have the Prayers of the Dead Saints, and you create this whole great big process trying to solve a problem that the Bible doesn't even talk about. And, and it's just, it's a mythology, so you have a mythological theology. So I will preach with firm conviction what I do know and be willing to say what I don't know and trust God. I think there's good reasons why we don't know some of these things because it would probably be worse if we did. In, in my opinion. Okay, so uh, if someone thinks it's not true that we're in Adam by natural generation, 
Uh, one more question that I got Eric here. I might as well use two or three witnesses here. I've been told you have to choose either or. The imputed Adam's sin is imputed to the human race, or Adam's sin is conveyed to the human race. And the conveyance then may happen at some later date, at some age of accountability, which the Bible never addresses. Uh, and then I'll have Brian ask, yeah, Brian talk about it. Yeah, I don't think we have to choose. I think it's both and. I've said for years it's both and. Yeah, in other words, what Bob is getting at, at conveyance is it's somewhat genetic. But we also see that it's not just genetic. There's an imputation. So in Matthew 5, we see in what's called the doctrine of federal headship. That is, God works by representatives. So Adam, the first representative, sins. Ergo, we become sinners. The righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness through faith, his righteousness is credited to us. So the answer that Bob and I have always given for those who don't like this doctrine of imputation, number one, if we're going to deal with fairness, well, then none of us could be saved because all of us end up acting in Adam in sin anyway. So if it's not fair that God would impute Adam's sinfulness to us, well, then we can't have the fairness of Christ's yeah. righteousness. We can't have it both ways. Well, I want the imputed righteousness of Christ, but I don't want Adam's sin. Right. That's plus, in logic, that's called special pleading. Because in Paul's teaching, they're laid out as parallel. In 1 Corinthians, is it 15.22? I think I got it right. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Then the question I ask, how are you in Adam? By natural generation. How are you in Christ? By supernatural regeneration. I would think every evangelical would agree with that. But guess what? They don't. You know why? Because human emotion and feelings are more important to them than Scripture. I don't like it. I don't like it. So I used, when, I, when we debated this in 86, when I first taught it, I said, so you don't like that you have the free gift of Christ's salvation and the imputed righteousness of Christ? You don't like that. Well, I like that. <laughs> Special pleading. Yes, Adam. Uh, throughout the generations. Oh, right in Adam. Yes, uh, Throughout the generations, uh, countless mothers have lost their infants in the womb or shortly after childbirth. Right. And I think through emotion, as you were saying, that this idea of salvation for infants gets propagated because, and I'll ask you as a pastor, if a woman loses their child as an infant and they come to you heartbroken, how can you lay out to them what you just said to us? It, it, it seems kind of cold-blooded, although it's the truth, I believe. What well, no, you see, you see I'm not saying I even know. Right, so, would, but but too often... But God is a merciful God. Amen, but too often... And so I I'm, pastors, I'm satisfied. Pastors will console the family... By making up doctrine. By making up doctrine. No, I won't do that. The other thing, see, that's why infant baptism came around so early in church history. They wanted to solve the problem that way. So you have baptismal regeneration, then you baptize the infants, and so you better get them to that baptismal font really quickly. Okay? And those guys that I saw in the video were talking about that. If you're going to use human emotion to decide what God would do and not do, your emotions are still going to shoot you down, because here's the child being brought into the church to find that baptismal priest or whatever, and dies before child gets there, and the guy says, "Oh, too late, they're in hell." That's just as a, that's just as egregious as any kind of doctrine. You can't solve it by human emotion. Adam Lee. So I, I agree with federal headship. Uh, I think it should be put under the ground of rubric of corporate solidarity. Yes, that's true. Because. Partially with uh, covenant uh, theology, the whole system, 
part of that is imported and influences by Augustine that oversimplifies Romans 5. Romans 5 absolutely teaches imputation, but there's more going on there. Like when he gets to all died, all sinned, and goes on to explain uh, that uh, until the, the law came, sin was in the world. Yes. Sin is not, uh, talks about like a legal or specific reckoning accounting uh, where there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to right. Moses, even over those who who sinned, not in the likeness of Adam. They did sin in the whole context that Paul establishes from Adam to Moses. Where in the Bible? Where's Adam? What book? Genesis. Genesis. The, the beginning. Uh, where, where, where does Moses and the law come in? Exodus. So between all of there is their sin and is their death. <laughs> yes. There's a whole lot of it. In fact, uh, the first, you, you have spiritual death, but when you get to uh, chapter 5 in Genesis, and he died, and he died, and he died, right. and he died, and he died. You get to the seventh, uh, Enoch uh, was not, for God took him. Okay, there's hope, there's hope of life. But there, there's all this sin and death uh, between this whole time. Right. And so... Covenant theologians want to say uh, that the sin is only in Adam, but corporate solidarity is bound up with that, but it also involves participation. Uh, they walk in the ways of their yeah. fathers. Yeah, maybe before you got here, we said it's both and. Well, uh, and they share in his guilt, and they share in his co- condemnation. Yeah, it, it's both and. Yes, yeah. It's both and. In fact, God has to address that in Ezekiel. And exactly. Because and, they, they took out of context... That God will visit the, uh, the judgment or the, the sin of the fathers on the sons to the third and fourth generation. Yeah. They ripped it out of context. Oh, it was just our fathers who sinned. You know, we're, we're innocent. We're innocent, you know, we're, yeah. We're righteous, and you're just punishing us because we sin. And God has to correct them. Uh, right. The only hope is faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when it comes to in Christ, there is also imputation and impartation. That's our doctrine of sanctification. So the righteousness of Christ is imputed to believers, but ultimately, Romans 8 says that leads to glorification. You, you have that, that legal imputed righteousness, but you also then have the outworking of God changes us. Right. So Adam's sin is corporate solidarity, and people really do sin. Christ's imputation is real, but God does change us. And so... After watching that video, I'm getting just, I'm exasperated because I think the church uh, out there so much is following the world. If you look at the politics, people want emotions and feelings to settle everything. I, I don't like it. I don't feel right. I don't like this. And then so let's just dream up something we do like. Okay. And uh, as, if we don't have the Word of God speaking authoritatively and bindingly and inherently to us about these important things, and if we're not willing to accept what God said and help each other understand it through the priesthood of every believer, and we want to use our emotions to come up with uh, the Catholics have infant baptism and the uh, Protestants have age of accountability or I don't know what all you come up with. We're just making these things up. We don't need to make anything up. There's plenty that we already can know and do know. And let's just understand it. And I take solace. I've mentioned this when Eric was teaching in Revelation. That when we are glorified, when the saints and the angels and the redeemed are all gathered in heaven and the books are open and God's final (laughs) verdict is set, what are, what are they doing? They're all praising God for his ways are glorious. And there's a bar going on in heaven. It's like there is in Ephesians 1. Let's praise God for his glorious ways and not sit around and carp that we don't like how God does things. Or make up some a false doctrine because we don't like what God said. Let's just follow what he said and be comforted in his goodness, in his kindness. I better get to another slide. Go ahead. I just, uh, I just want to qualify one thing. Uh, 
with like the Roman Catholic doctor or Pelagianism or anything like that, Adam did not just leave a bad example. Uh, there's corruption uh, in the human race. Uh, we, we all sin uh, because uh, we're, we're in Adam. There were consequences for uh, his sin uh, in, in rebellion. Uh, right. Humans. There's corruption, there's participation, there's imputation. It's all true. Amen. Well, let's just look at it this way. In Adam, all that death is separation, not obliteration. Spiritual death is being in a state of being separated from the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. Okay, you must be born again. Those who are born again have eternal life. Those who have the Holy Spirit have life. The Holy Spirit isn't imparted through Adam. The Holy Spirit poured out through Christ. Let me quote one more verse. I better get onto a second slide today. Because this is what we already did last week. Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, Luke 24, 44. These are my words which I spoke to you well, I was still with you, remember? This was after his resurrection. That all, look at what Jesus said, all the things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that be Tanakh, they must be fulfilled. What God says, Luke 24, 44, must be fulfilled. Eric and I have been recording a lot of radio about Bible prophecy, and we're saying that applies the future prophecy, too. Was in Daniel, what's in Revelation. God will restore Israel because he said he would. All the things that are said. Christ will sit on the throne of David and reign for a thousand years. Must be fulfilled. There it is. A slot. A new one. <laughs> Paul's preaching at the city of Antioch. i got to show you my new... I bought that. Oh, Adam knew about it. I bought those pictures, Adam. Oh yeah. So I got to use my new toy. Oh, there's a little better picture of where we've been. But this here, let me just show you some slides. There's a guy who's got thousands of slides. Todd Bolin. Yeah. Masters College. A guy from Israel about all these places. So they had a sale, and I bought them. So as I go through action, I'm going to show you pictures of the, that these places really do exist. This one here, uh, remember in Acts 13, we, we saw this Sergius Paulus? So here, uh, there, and there's variations in the, that come with the slides that this guy has. I'll read it. It says, this Latin inscription was found near Pisidian Antioch, and it includes the name Paulus. And the following word could be the beginning of Sergius, Sergi. While it is unknown whether this refers to the, photo, the Sergius Paulus of Acts 13.7, it does provide contemporary use of the name. This inscription was photographed at the Yaldak Museum near Pisidian Antioch. So there's a name, there's a location, both mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Pisidian Antioch was was located in Phrygia and closely related to Pisidia. The city was the administrative center for the central part of Galatia, the overarching region in which both Pisidia and Phrygia were located. The aqueduct pictured above was located north of the city. So there's some ruins from that area mentioned in the book of Acts about Pisidian Antioch. Here's one more. Um, it says your tradition locates the synagogue where Paul preached. That's what we're doing right now, that sermon preaching the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch at the location of the Church of St. Paul visible in the middle distance. The paving stones of uh, Decumanus are visible in the foreground. Uh, let me just tell you, after the time of Constantine, wasn't, 
uh, you guys probably know this, or anybody's been to seminary, they went around and built, tried to locate where they thought these sites were, and built churches on them. So they went around the Middle East building churches. This is where it was, this is where it was, this is where it was. Now this is a couple hundred years or 300 years later. But uh, we do know this, this is what happened here, and that's the traditional location. This is for later. Okay, there we go. So I showed you my pictures. I spent some money, so I wanted to get something out of it and hope it benefits you. For one thing, I want people growing up knowing, and it's just knowing that the Bible is not mythology. It's cold, sober history. Okay, so now Paul's preaching in the synagogue. I showed you a possible location of Acts 13, 29, 30. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, notice God's purpose overarches this entire narrative. Paul says they carried out all that was written concerning him. He isn't just saying they did it. They're unwittingly fulfilling God's purpose, right? They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Uh, Norm, could you look up Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23? The word in the Greek for cross, I have it highlighted in red in my PowerPoint, is zulon, and that is translated often tree, zulon, Literally, I believe, means wood. Okay, so we have Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23. And if a man has committed a sin worthy, sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his part shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is a curse of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Right. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. So Jesus was hung on the same word, but in the Septuagint Old Testament or Greek Old Testament, Zulon tree. He was hung on wood and was thus cursed. There's an allusion, I believe, to the bronze serpent that was put on a pole and shown to the people in order to avert the curse. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that Jesus bore the curse for us, that those who believe in him would inherit the blessing of God. The blessing of God, the blessing of Abraham, even. The believer. Everything comes back to believing God and his promises, doesn't it? Do you believe that Jesus bore the curse for you? Amen. That'll, if you uh, see what's going on out there, what I just told you will save you thousands of dollars. I get emails from people who have already spent thousands of going around the country trying to find curse breakers. <clears throat> Paying to have a curse broke is not a new idea. Dana's been talking about some of this. Balaam. Balaam. They paid him to, to break a curse. I wish people just learned from that. What was Balaam's problem? Since his sin. God blessed Israel. And he couldn't reverse it. I don't care how much money you have, and I don't care where you take me. God still blessed them. I can't fix that. You want to be blessed? Believe in Christ. And don't be filled with fear. Blessing and, and cursing are relational. They're not symptomatic. You can't determine curses by examining symptoms. The false teachers all claim that. Joyce Myers teaches that. It's false. 
I, I was just flipping and one Sunday morning because I'd already seen the news cycle and I was getting woke up so I could come here and teach. Here's Joyce Meyer one day saying, if we use the wrong kind of words, whenever we say things in the wrong way, we give Satan more authority in our lives. So Satan has got just so much authority in the life of the believer and if we say a negative thing, he gets more. If we say a positive thing, he gets less. And so people are going around getting more and more cursed by Satan depending on how their words come out of their mouth. And we've known, Diane and I have known people that believe that kind of stuff for 50 years and they won't hear otherwise. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really shamanism. But they don't, so I keep telling them, why don't you believe what the Bible says? Oh, I do believe the Bible. Oh, really? So are you blessed because you're in Christ? Or are you blessed because you said the right words? If you have a sickness or an accident or a financial problem, does that prove that you just said the wrong thing, Satan got authority and cursed you? Or if you are blessed in Christ and you're trusting him and praising him and giving him all the glory no matter what happens, if things go wrong, you're still blessed because nobody can reverse it. I believe the latter. I believe that I'm blessed. I'm blessed now. I have strength and health and ability to speak. I was blessed a year ago or two years ago when my voice kept going up. And I kept getting sick and landing in the hospital. The blessing doesn't go away. It's just whether we go to God and keep trusting Him to throw Him grace or we go off looking for the Balaam, modern day Balaam. They have business cards. So-and-so curse breaker, give me a call. One guy had been to a bunch of them and he said, do you know who's the best? I said, I don't believe in that. I kept telling him. The Colossians. I don't believe in that. No, who's the best one? I've tried a lot of them. And then he found the guy finally said, well, I know this guy in New York who will break curses for, five, for a $579 donation. And I said, no, save your money. Then I got an email Later, he said, well, I went to the guy and paid him the 579 and it didn't work. (laughs) Ah, with Christians like that, who needs pagans? (laughs) Oh, how hard it is. I spent my whole life trying to convince Christians that they're actually blessed. But Jesus bore a curse. Here it is right here. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21. 22 to 23. Jesus predicted this, as we've already seen. And then we have Isaiah 51, 1 through 11. Um, that's a long section. Let me just read some of it. Oh, I'll just start reading. I'm going to read here. It'll be quicker if I do it. You can turn to it or put a bookmark in that page in your Bible. Isaiah 53, starting with verse 1. Who has believed our message? That's the real issue right there. Who believes? Do you believe what God said? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? By the way, the implication is that those who believe are the ones who will see God's arm revealed. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appears that we should be attracted to him. He was despised, verse 3, and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our... By the way, we uh, Adam mentioned corporate solidarity. Isn't that what these corporate words are? Our? That's us. That's the whole nation. That's us. We, that's the way we work, and that's what happened. Yet surely our griefs he bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. 
uh, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Do you see the theme in Isaiah 53? We were the ones that were wrong. We are the ones that sinned. We're the ones that deserve to be punished. We are the ones who bore the curse. But he, this suffering servant, did all of this for us if we're those who believe him, who believe what the, the word of the Lord, who believe the message. He has gone his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Here's that sin of Adam falls on him. And it's our sin too. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. There's songs about that. There's statements. He could have summoned thousands of angels. Wiped out everybody. They wanted him to do it. They taunted him. Get off of that cross. If you're really the son of God, prove it right now. Summon the angels. Defeat your foes. We'll make you king right here, right now. Except for we'd all be lost and have to go to hell because he wouldn't have died for sins. And then like sheep that was silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due. Here we have penal substitution, do we not? We believe in penal substitutionary atonement. That is mocked by modern liberal theology. It was mocked by liberal theology 100 years ago. It's always been mocked. And they just have a different way of mocking it. Penal substitutionary atonement. He bore the stroke that was due to us. Verse 9, his grave was a sign of a wicked man, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Look at the irony in there. God's purpose is fulfilled. God is pleased to do things this way. The mystery now revealed. The mystery of godliness. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. There's an allusion to the resurrection, in my opinion. Eric, do you have any comment on that there? Yeah, you know, in uh, verse 9, one thing I just wanted to point out is there's no deceit upon his lips. If you just fast forward to Isaiah 59, 3, here's the rebuke to Israel. Their sins have separated them from their God. And in 59.3, it says, For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. So the reason we pointed that out is Bob and I were one day using Isaiah 53 to help someone come to faith. And Isaiah 53, they claim the suffering servant there was merely Israel. The problem with that is Israel routinely is depicted as having wicked lips. Yeah. They speak lies. Um, Isaiah 6, remember, uh, woe to me, I'm ruined from, I'm a man of unclean lips. Yeah. They say it's Isaiah or they say it's Israel. Exactly. It's not. But this one who suffers, there's no deceit upon his mouth. So it can't be corporate Israel. This is someone who's different. It's not Isaiah, it's not Israel. Exactly. Amen. Who is it? It's got to be Messiah. Hallelujah. Yeah. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Who's the many? Doesn't Paul mention the many in Romans? It's mentioned in Romans 5. Clearly talking about this. Yes, uh, Linda. As we were reading about in... Oh, 53, where it's talking about the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you then ever teach that Jesus was guilty? Would you ever say Jesus is guilty? We say he bears the he guilt. Bears. 
Right, but for the, the innocent one bears the guilt. But it doesn't make him a guilty. Person. No, there was a, he was a sinless one right. who paid the penalty for the sins of others. Very good. We know a pastor who teaches that from the pulpit. Really? Saying Jesus is guilty. It's, it's forensic legal uh, that he's, he's reckoned our sins. So yeah, legal. right. And I just can't... They won't accept the legal imputation without, you know, they're, they're making, it's a category here. We would call that, I would say, they're making what is legal, they're making it ontological. Thank you. Yeah. Do I get the coffee? <laughs> That's yeah. a big word for me. Yeah. Well, I'll, 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 let me explain ontological, because I use it a lot. In the Greek, there's a word ontos, it means being. So ontological has to do with the essence of being. So they'd be saying the essence of Christ's being was he was sinful. And that's false. Um, now, when it comes to us being justified, the Roman Catholic Church, you know what they said about the Reformation? They say your doctrine is legal fiction. God won't call us righteous. The Jew we actually are. So they call it legal fiction. Luther corrected that. But see, right here in Isaiah 53, we have the innocent one, the blameless, sinless Lamb of God, who bears the sins of the people who really deserve it. Is that right? Yes. And you know, a, a good passage that su supports exactly what Bob is saying, when we're talking about forensic, we're talking about the Latin phrase means in court. So the idea is there's this imputation to Christ, something that's foreign to him, but he's bearing our iniquity. And the great passage that says that very thing is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where the Father made him, and notice that made him, it might be Lugitsma, I don't remember, but he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's that legal transaction, the sinless one, paid our debt. And if he ever was, as Bob's saying, ontologically sinful, well then he wouldn't bear our, our debt because he yeah. would deserve to be punished for his own. So he could so that's the whole point yeah, of the sinless one. Yeah. You know, sometimes the word of faith people change are, are the ones that are guilty because they yeah. want us to have the same status as Christ. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then I got a something I want to do at the end here. Just to tie it uh, back to uh, substitutionary atonement that you were talking about, uh, Derek was just alluding to, you need a sinless, unblemished lamb, an uh, unblemished uh, sacrifice. And so uh, the uh, one who in himself was just, was reckoned legally unjust on our behalf, he took our place. And we, who in ourselves are unjust, we're reckoned just in, in Christ. Right. That's so in himself, he's not he's not sinful. Amen. That's rock solid Christian doctrine that we need to know. Uh, it, it just uh, uh, breaks my heart that evangelicals are willing to go here, there, and everywhere else. I don't I don't know. It's just sad, and I don't know what's being taught in the pulpit so that people don't know. They should know better. If somebody comes along denying original sin and they get a hearing and it goes all over YouTube. Could you get those doors closed? Uh, well, whatever the case, we're responsible to make sure that doesn't happen to you. Jesus died for sins. Here's another verse. 1 Peter 3.18. The just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. It's clear he wasn't the sinner. He was just. The unjust is us. And we believe the gospel, the imputation of Christ's righteousness is put into our account. If you didn't see the latest CIC article, I talk about all these processes that have been invented to obscure the fact that Christians are sanctified. And I have a, a statement that says, when the process obscures the reality of the position. All sanctification is grounded 
in positional holiness. We are the saints. We are holy. The process is completing, completed at glorification. The means are accessible to all Christians. They're not for the super monks and nuns and you know people like that that claim they're holier than everybody else. But all Christians believe what Christ did for them in the growth in the grace and knowledge of God. And what we feel a moral duty before God to do is to make sure those means are provided to you so that you can contend for the faith. And you know what God said, and you know that God has forgiven your sins. Now, I want to take a few minutes to deal with something here that uh, I wrote about, and we just got this second edition. Now, this I'm putting up there on the slide a book by a lady that I actually met at an emergent conference after my book was published. And um, let's see if I got her name here. Yeah, that one, I think you see her name, Danielle Schroer. She still has a website. And um, this Jurgen Moltmann, who is the subject of the first chapter of my book, was the one who took the German idealistic philosophy of Hegel and created a theology out of it. Moltmann fought for the Nazis during World War II. Moltmann did. He was an atheist. He was captured at the end of the war, brought to England as a prisoner of war, and then when everything got settled after World War II, released to go back to Germany. And when he got there, he decided to become a Christian of sorts, to study seminary, and he wanted to adopt a theology of hope, and that, that's the name of his book. And I address that in chapter one of my book. Very dense theology, very hard to understand. But I, what I try to do is unpack it and explain it. So I was at the conference where he spoke. He was in his late 80s, and the people were lined up to get his autograph. He was like their hero. Tony Jones was there, Doug Padgett was there, this Danielle Schroer. Her book came out in 2009, the same year as mine did. I hadn't seen hers and she hadn't seen mine. But notice the picture uh, that's behind all everything else. There, see that vortex? It's like a swirling vortex. I think it's ironic. I have a vortex on the front of my book. We thought about that independently. But here's the difference. The reason I chose a vortex was that they're claiming that history is evolving into paradise on earth without future judgment. That God is in everything, that there's no heaven and hell, that there will be no future cataclysmic judgment of earth, that God, all world religions, nature, all humans, even atheists, are all evolving into a state of utopia through processes already happening on earth. That's what emer this what's emerging. Just today I got an email about a convergent conference. Now they have convergence, emergence, convergence. Let me explain that. Let me quote what Moulton said about this Danielle Shorer's book. I'm more than grateful for this book, says Moulton. It is not only true, but it's also beautiful to live with God's promise in the heart, God's enlarging horizon before your eyes. Now, I cite something that Shorer says in here, I, I wrote a new preface you know, when we republished. And uh, Schroer, uh, who's endorsed by Moltmann, calls his philosophy, quote, 
neo-Hegelian panentheistic universalism. Let's say that again. Neo-Hegelian, Hegel, remember, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Okay, his philosophy, by the way, was adopted in two different forms. One form was national socialism of Hitler. The other form was the Marxism of Stalin in different ways. And they both were going to bring their paradise. One was a communist paradise. The other was a national socialistic paradise. According to Hegel's philosophy, progress is the innate nature of the universe. Hegel said that when Adam sinned, he didn't sin, he fell up. That was the first step of progress, was Adam's sin. So the nature of the world is that God is in it. Because of that energy of God in everything, everything is denoted as being progressive, as heading toward a future utopia without future judgment. Everything is involved with this. And they told me when I interviewed people at that conference, they don't they won't listen to any eschatology. They hate dispensationalism more than anything. They despise it. Because we believe history is linear and headed toward judgment. They no, 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 no. God is not going to judge. Paradise is just around the corner. But that's what Hitler thought. The Reich is a millennium. So I wrote in the preface here of the second edition, I wrote this, theological liberalism and political liberalism are hardly different. Um, I'll, say, I'll say a couple of things after I quote this paragraph. Theological liberal, liberalism and political liberalism are hardly different. When we hear the term progressive, we should realize that the definition of progress is that of Hegel, who wrote probably about 1810, either side of that, and his various followers, theistic or atheistic. The reason for the heated passion, I'd say, we see in the political debate, is that those who are not joining the progressive agenda are seen to be hindering the process of social and spiritual evolution that will supposedly make the new cosmos a paradise for all. Dear saints, if you believe that sin is defined by God who spoke on Sinai and on transfiguration, God has spoken, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, that there will be a future judgment, that we need to repent of our sins, that Christ is God incarnate and he did die for sins and there was a penal substitutionary sacrifice and that he did bodily ascend to heaven and he is coming again to judge then you are the worst sinners in the entire United States they, they believe that with all their hearts you are the sinners why? Because you're not progressive. Now, I'll do more about this when we talk about boundaries. There's a phrase they call in this sort of thing called the boundary-breaking God. Where was it that they didn't want boundaries? Well, that was bad. Um, I tried to show you that. Here's the two vortexes. They believe that it's a staircase to heaven. Everything, they call this spiral dynamics. The whole of the universe is converging and emerging and converging and emerging on the way to heaven. I chose a vortex, having not seen hers, because I believe it's a romantic vortex sucking people into hell. Now, do you see why we got a problem? Somebody is wrong. 
If I'm wrong, then I'm the worst sinner because I'm resisting this so very much and so very strongly. And anybody else who would do that, we're the, we're, we're the sinners because we don't believe what they say is progress. So, um, I think it would be tragic if the church did not understand what's going on. The next time you hear somebody say they're progressive, this is what they're talking about. Some version of it. Don't believe that they don't even know the difference. I've done enough research. Eric, before we were on the radio, went to Doug Padgett's website, and I debated him in a public debate. It was all left-wing political socialism, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Doug Padgett is now the drive-time host for AM 950. If any of you have ever heard that, that's what I call the Marxist channel. And so he does that. In fact, it was interesting, four days after you and I did that radio, Bob, I was in the workout club. I often get chances to witness to people there. And this fellow had found out that I was a pastor. He asked me what I believe. I told him, I said, what do you believe? He says, well, I guess I'm a pantheist. I believe that everything in the end is going to synthesize. I have to tell you, 20 there years ago, maybe I was just ignorant, but I never heard those terms before. But it's, I think it's becoming more prevalent that people, like Bob saying, they're not just ignorant, they really know what they're saying yeah. when they're saying that they're progressive. Because of the YouTube and the Internet, everybody knows what they're really saying. They're not accidentally saying it. So, there's the issue. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be wise and understanding of the Word of God that we might learn from you and not be deceived by the culture around us and help us to be bold enough to keep preaching the gospel no matter what happens. Thank you for what you've done and made possible through your Son that we can believe and be saved. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you upstairs.